I don't know what those white people in this country feel. I can only include what they feel from the state of their institution. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. Welcome to Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show are my co-hosts, Katina and Gary. Today, we are interviewing Dr. Teresa J. Canada. She is a professor in the Education and Educational Psychology Department at Western Connecticut State University. She served as chairperson of the department from July 2007 until September 2011. She is the author of the book entitled Desegregation of the New York City Schools, A Story of the Silk Stocking Sisters. In her book, she describes it as an experiment telling the story of the desegregation of PS6, an elite New York City public school. We hope you enjoy the conversation. All right, so we have a very special guest today, Dr. Teresa Canada, um, who has an amazing story that is very much African American history and American history um, in discussing desegregation, specifically in New York City, um, in an elementary school. She's written a book about it. But as always, whenever we have African American guests, specifically, specifically, I always ask, "Who are you? Who is Dr. Teresa Canada?" My first response has to, of course, go back to my heritage, my parents. Um, That's the source from which I come. Um, And that's really the stepping stones that led me to where I am to this day. So, yeah, I am a native New Yorker. um, And I grew up in West Harlem. I literally live three blocks away from where I grew up to this day. Wow. Okay. So you talk about circles. You go through, you go, you start at one point. And it's almost like a full circle. So I've left. I've lived in Cincinnati. I've lived in New York, uh, in Rochester, New York. I lived in various places. But I always tend to come back to the space. So that's from which I come. I grew up in New York City schools, public school system. Um, I have all my education is in the state of New York. Both my all my degrees, all four of my degrees are from the state of New York wow. in some capacity. Two schools: Columbia University Teachers College and University of Rochester. So basically, I attended school in New York State for public K one through twelve, and of course, all my college degrees are from university, private universities in the state of New York. So basically, my education, my foundation, my experiences come out of the New York City experience. Well. Thank you so much for sharing, Dr. Canada, and welcome to our podcast. Could you tell me what your degrees are in? A uh, bachelor's degree in psychology, a uh, master's of education in vocational rehabilitation counseling and personnel counseling, a master's of arts in uh, counseling psychology, and a doctor of education um, in ed- admin higher education administration. Excellent. All right. Well, we're going to get into it and talk about your story, your book, and uh, your experience with desegregation in New York City. Yeah. So could you just kind of open up by sharing a little bit of that story? Um, 
how you were one of the girls who was brought in to desegregate PS6 in New York. And what was that experience like? Let me just preface this by saying I talk about this experience as being an experiment. And let me describe to you why I say it's an experiment. Why I say it's an experiment is because there was a time, um, I think past the Brown decision in 54, of course, there was a committee that was established in New York City to try to basically change the dynamics that was happening in the public schools in New York. They were very isolated, segregated and isolated in certain places throughout the city. So basically what the city developed was a committee that tried to find ways to provide more opportunities for, for students to be able to be in different school settings so it wouldn't be so completely isolated. Now, doing, and, and part of that process, I went through my research and found that, that the city had what they call feeder schools and sender schools in the 1960s. The school that I attended initially from kindergarten to third grade was considered a sender school. And there were schools that became feeder schools who would kind of get these students who were coming from these sender schools. And what was happening is that there were schools within the black and Puerto Rican communities that was very overcrowded, okay? And there were schools that were, were kind of like under-enrolled. So there was a situation that came about where they said, we, we need some more students. But at the same time, they wanted to find a way to be able to provide more integration of schools in terms of racial and social and economic diversity. Why I say my experience attending my original elementary school and attending PS6 was an experiment because PS6 was never listed in any of the research that I uh, reviewed as a feeder school. It was not on the list anywhere. There were other schools that were on the list, but PS6 was not. So part of my investigation and, and leading into this was the fact that why wasn't PS6 part of this process officially? And from having done the research and having spoken to one of, interview one of the teachers who was still alive to this day, who was at my elementary school, my, where I came from, she explained that PS6 wanted to choose their students. They wanted to make sure the students who were going to attend PS6 were going to be able to have the type of academic wherewithal or have the so-called middle class uh, types of values that would fit in with the students who were already attending PS6. So that's why I say this experience that I went through at PS6 was an experiment because it wasn't the traditional uh, part of the feeder sender situation that was documented in the research. So that's the first thing that I say is an experiment. The second piece relates to the fact that we, the girls in my book, we talk about, we were not bused to school any more than students who lived 10 blocks away from the school were bused. We took New York City public buses to and from, like many people did, okay? The busing is for people to think about the yellow school buses. That occurred eventually at PS6, but that wasn't what I experienced. That was not my experience and many of my classmates. 
So it was a very different type of situation. So that gives you some indication of why this was a very different story. All right? And also the fact that PS6 to this day is a premier elementary school in the New York City public school system. To this day. Wow. Okay. And one of the issues that came about was that they tried to have more diverse students come into PS6, but they wanted to make sure these were students who were not going to impact the academic standards that the school was accustomed to having, nor were they going to have situations where students wouldn't be able to fit in to what they provided. For example, PS6 had kitchens with a plural. They had a stellar music program, both orchestra and band and chorus. They would present fabulous theoretical kinds of performances. Okay. The chorus was stellar. Okay. Um, it was also a situation where students, I mean, I played the violin from fourth grade until ninth grade. Okay. That was my second instrument. But everyone who came into PS6, not just the girls who came in with me, all of us had to play an instrument upon entering PS6. If we hadn't had one before, we definitely had one when we arrived at PS6. Okay, so music and academics was crucial, and that was combined. And the kinds of the, the, they had a wonderful gymnasium, they had a wonderful lunchroom, they had a wonderful big yard. So just the, what that school offered, which was not typical from the school that I attended, it wasn't overcrowded, okay? You had, you had wonderful seating, you, had, you weren't had classrooms with 30 students in it. So just all those basic kinds of examples that indicated the quality of education that students were going to receive or were accustomed to receiving in that particular school. So that gives you some idea of why I talk about this experience as being that, that people need to know about this. We have these assumptions. How does that land on you um, in contrast from your experience then when you stepped into that, that space as a young black girl um, coming from the, the, the experience of public school where you came from and versus now as a woman who is a scholar, who is a college professor, who understands the ramifications of education and the psychology of education. How do those two things, how, do, how does that land between then versus now? One of the chapters in my book, I talk about the psychological impact of desegregation. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm also a licensed professional counselor. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the mental health perspective is also significant. Absolutely. And as part of my research, I, I, I'm just saying that one of the things um, that was so obvious is that if our parents, they took a risk. Yeah. Our parents said, if this is going to help improve the education for our children, um, we're all, all, all for it. And I talk about the psychological impact of desegregation that really people don't think about. Because yeah. okay? there were there some very traumatic experiences to this yes. day. Yes. Um, and I think about, that's why a lot of my research is on early childhood education, unfortunately, but it is. Mm-hmm. Um, because I recall these experiences and how you have to find support networks 
to support children going through these experiences. Not that they're not going through it today. They're going, still going through it in different ways, but it's still the same kind of process, okay? Yeah. But if parents, t- we were, how should I say this? We were guinea pigs, mm-hmm. okay? Our parents took a risk allowing us to attend this school, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, some parents were given the offer to, to, for their children to attend. They said no. And I, matter of fact, I, I recall there were two friends in my class whose parents said no because they didn't want them to travel so far out of the neighborhood to go to school, mm-hmm. okay? Um, and I know that for a fact. But the issue was, what is it going to take? If this is what it's going to take, yes. But if some of the parents really knew the mm-hmm. kinds of experiences that we came across, how we were treated, um, the harassments in some cases, the neglect in some cases, they would have pulled us out in a minute, okay? Um, but we found a way to support each other. Yeah. Okay? Mm-hmm. And what it was, community, the community which we lived in, our friends in the class, okay? And in many cases, some, some cases, the black church for many students, okay? Yes. So you had, there There were people, I mean, there were people in neighborhoods, they knew I was catching this bus. Here was this four-foot-tall child mm. waiting for a public bus with a violin in one hand and a book bag in the other, okay? Getting on a public bus, going about 45 minutes each day. Yeah. Okay? Alone. Yes. Okay? And that was risky. I don't know if I would send my child to do that, but I'm just saying that was risky, so we think about what people will do to make sure that their child's life would be better than theirs. Yes. Okay? That's what made the difference. And we realized that we may not have thought about it next. The context now is me being a professional. You don't think about that. Mm-hmm. But if we think about it now, that's why I wanted to make sure I wrote about this and had the discussion about how people experience certain things throughout the book. Each person's situation was different. Um, but for me... You have to find things to keep you, keep you so you could cope. Yes. And many times it was the cooperation from other friends who attended the school. In other situations, there were people in the community who knew you were catching the bus. You can do it, girl. You can go ahead. Go ahead. You can do it. Yeah. Okay? Those kinds of encouragements took place consistently. Yes. Consistently. Okay? They were proud of us. Oh, okay? yes. All right. So those... those Thinking back on it now, I, I don't even know. I never did ask my parents, why did I end up going to the school? And I just thought, I said, why didn't I? I never thought about it. But I just know that whenever there was something that we needed, and this was consistent across the board, whatever we needed to be able to be competitive in the classrooms, our parents found a way to accommodate us in that way. And let me just give you just one example. There, there was, this is, this, is a, this is a funny one as well. You all know about the Crayola crayons, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. It's still existence. Okay. Now, in our neighborhood, you had the old-fashioned Woolworth. Mm-hmm. Okay? Okay? And Woolworth sold Crayola crayons. But the largest pack of crayons that you could get from Woolworths was like the 16-pack. So here I am, my, my, all my little bags and stuff, everything, all my crayons taking to school. 
And I get to school. I'm just so proud of my little crayon box of 16, you know, because you've gotten the eight colors, but I have the 16, okay? <laughs> Go to school. You take out your crayons, and then you look next to the person next to you or the person on the other side. They have this huge box of 36 crayons with a special uh, uh, sharpener in the box. <laughs> Unheard of. Right. Because we didn't mm. see that in our neighborhood. Okay? We didn't see those kind of crayons because they wouldn't be able to sell it in our neighborhood because of the economic situation in the yes. neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Okay? So what happened is I asked somebody who had the 36 crayon box, where did you get it from? They told us where they got it from. That sat- a Saturday, maybe the next Saturday, my mom gets on the, well, we had a car, but we got on the bus and they- we took the bus to that particular store, whatever they bought it from, and we got the crayons. Mm-hmm. Okay? So that's just one example of what parents did to support us, okay? Whatever it took, they were willing to support us through this journey, not knowing the day-to-day, not knowing the day-to-day. Yeah. Because I believe if, if they knew the day-to-day, they would have pulled us out in a minute, pretty much. And some students did not stay. Um, some did leave, especially the, the males. They just left. The black males, just, they just it, some didn't even make it through the rest of the, the whole year. So I'm just telling you, that was another story um, that someone asked me, why didn't I include them? Because I, I said they didn't exist. They weren't there. They didn't stay. I couldn't ask them if they weren't there. Hmm. But my point I'm saying to you is that this was a situation where the support came from the parents, the community, the friends in the class that you met. And not, and not everybody was, was uh, I should say, there were teachers who, there were a couple of teachers who were supportive, but majority were not. Wow. Um, wow. And uh, because we were, quote, unquote, replacing other students. Hmm. Okay. Um, and I, there was the following year after I arrived at the school, there was a protest that took place. I think one of the people talk about in the book, um, I mentioned in the book about the placards and they were saying, you know, go home or whatever. They were mm. protesting because what happened, PS6 was rezoning. And to be able to allow, um, this was a, because the things, the city had changed their policies of the schools and they were going to now actually bus children to PS6 and maybe other schools and the yellow school buses. Mm. So they had to make room for those kids to come. So there were students who were, was with, in a sense, within zoning of PS6 previously, but when they rezoned the area, some of those students were no longer eligible to attend PS6. And they had to go to a school in a different neighborhood. Okay. So that was another piece that's, that should be discussed because those children who came on those yellow school buses, they didn't get tested like we were tested. They didn't get tested for music. They didn't, we didn't know about their academics. Um, but I knew, what I did know at the time, even as a child, that my reading score at the third grade was eighth grade level. That much I knew. Uh, my math, I think, was sixth, sixth grade level, sixth or seventh grade. But I knew, I knew this as a, as a third grader, that my reading, because, you know, I kind of kept up to date with my reading st- and so forth. But that was key. The reading and math scores were key. And then you had to have, I should say, everyone who came in had to play an instrument. Now, we were, I was tested for music to, before I was apparently admitted to PS6. Some people were tested for art. Um, but mind you, I already had an ear for music because I was playing the piano since I was six and a half years old. So, you know, my sister, my sister and I, we were 
playing the piano. So we had a piano at home. We had lessons and we had recitals and all that. That was part of what we, we did. So for me to take the music test wasn't that difficult. So I passed that. So I passed the academics and I passed the music. So I, I was admitted to PS6. So that's how I ended up at PS6. But the experience when we got there was not what we expected. That's <laughs> all I'm going to tell you. I, I was like, okay, this is a new school. I'll do what I have to do. And I'm going to learn. I'm going to study. I'm going to do what I have to do. And that's what we did. But it was challenging. And to, be, to think back on it now, as a professor who teaches students who need to understand about how you need to teach to all, okay, which was not a philosophy at the time, okay, um, but that's what I try to present to students. If you're going to teach, teach to all, okay, not to some, but to all. But what I found at PS6 that they were teaching, but they weren't necessarily wanting to teach to all. Um, and there's another experience that I want to share with the audience that uh, I don't ask me how this came about, but um, I, I mentioned that uh, some of the teachers were, were, some, were supportive, some were not. There was one teacher in particular who um, would call on the black and brown students when they didn't have their hand raised for, for a question. You know, teacher asks a question, if you don't raise your hand, that means you don't have the answer. Well, so when we didn't raise our hands, we'd get called on. But when we raised our hands, we didn't get called on. Hmm. Then my friend and I, we figured it out. So we said, well, let's raise our hands when we don't know the answer and not raise our hands when we do know the answers. The teacher finally called on us. And all it took was one lesson. And when we answered the the question correctly, she never did it again. Okay? What I believe now as a professional, as a professor, a person who teaches teachers and who teaches counselors, unfortunately, this particular teacher was in a way trying to give the impression that the black and brown children weren't smart because they didn't have the answers. All right? And somehow, my friend and I, we figured out, okay, let's not raise our hand. See what she calls. And when we had the answers, she was dumbfounded. So that's, that stopped that experiment for her. That mm. was no longer part of what she did. She didn't do that anymore, okay? So she had to probably find something else to figure out. But as an academic, you talk about how this impacts a child's cognitive ability and the ability to, to believe in themselves, their self-worth, their self-concept, all that is taking place. This is this are nine, eight, nine-year-olds. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what are you trying to do? What are you trying to do? Okay. Um, so those are things I think about um, how we not only survived this, but we thrived beyond that. Despite these kinds of things, that's just a little. I mean, there was some. You know, playground, you know, this is a classroom, but things took place in the, in the, in the playground as well. Um, one of the young ladies in the book talks about how she was not invited to be in the Maypole, whatever, whatever that exercise was. The teacher said, no, you can't be, and you have to go someplace else. You know, why? Okay? Um, because the aesthetics of her being part of this exercise would not make it look distinguished enough. Um, you know, it's, it's just like, 
you know, thinking back, so you asked me the question about now as an academic. So when I do teach, I teach to all because you never know the next Dr. Canada who may be coming out of that classroom. Mm -hmm. That's the key. But if your mindset is such that you feel these children aren't worthy, then you are going to behave like you want to uh, denigrate them or make others think that they're not smart or uh, those kinds of attitudes. And they develop. If you, if you tell a person, if a child is exposed to that, what's going to be the thinking? The child says, oh, they don't know the answers. They're not smart. Okay. Oh, well, this child can't play with us because something's wrong with them. Okay. Mm -hmm. So there were a lot of things that took place that could have basically ruined children for life. Mm. But fortunately, there, was, there were other people who were supportive, other children whose parents were okay with us befriending them. Um, you know, our parents attended all the plays, all the recitals that, you know, grandma, auntie, everybody showed up, okay? <laughs> okay. So, you know, you, you had your folks there, so you would know you were going to be okay. But it was still challenging. Um, but the point is, we found a way to kind of, you know, keep us together and to still be able to get to the next step. Um, and it's unfortunate. I think about one of the girls we talked about in the book. She was on one, like they were two black guys in the, in the class. And one was left and he said, I got, I'm out of here. She said, don't leave me. Don't leave me. Please don't leave me. Okay. And she was then the only person of color in the classroom for that whole year after mm. he left. So those kinds of things really was difficult. Um, but she had her other buddies in the school who she knew in her neighborhood. Um, and that helped. So if you don't have a network, and that goes for any child, okay? If you have no connection to anything that you can relate to, it's difficult for you to learn, for you to study, and for you to achieve. You have to have some connection to something to be able to, 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 to just to have the thirst for going forward. And what I found, this experiment was such that it could have snuffed the life out of you. Because mm -hmm. okay. it's not the life. But fortunately, um, you know, all the women in the book end up being okay. <laughs> you know, what professor, school psychologist, pediatrician, um, uh, Fortune 100 executive, um, social worker, uh, pharmaceutical sales uh, uh, manager. I mean, we did okay. Okay? We did okay. All right? But it didn't have to be that. But we did okay. Now, mind you, someone asked, would it make a difference if we hadn't gone to PS6? That's another question to ask. Okay? Mm. Okay. Um, I'm not sure. I, I do know that there was a significant difference in how we... Uh, were able to deal with what was ahead of us, okay, at a lot earlier age than some people coming to college who had never been exposed to a diverse environment. Very different, okay? So it prepared us to what was next. Whereas other people wait till they, if you're 18, 19 years old, then you all of a sudden are confronted with a situation. Oh, what's this? Um, how do I cope with this? How do I handle this? 
So those of us who went through this experience, we were better prepared. Right. Unfortunately, and fortunately, at the same time. Going back to, and just tying together some of the threads of what you're saying, uh, I think of in that story about the teacher calling on the students who don't know the answer, and just how counterproductive that is, because that's going to create anxiety in the students, and anxiety is detrimental to learning. Like, if you're anxious, it keeps your brain from making the connections that it needs to make. And I also think of just the added anxiety for all of you being in this new environment where you're confronting uh, the racism that's both overt and kind of implicit bias, um, and then how you overcame that and still did so much, I think that says a lot about the unity, the connection, the support that you had amongst one another. Um, and to that, you, you call yourselves the Silk, Sock, uh, the Silk Stocking Sisters. Could you talk about where that came from and a little bit more about what that support looked like within that kind of sisterhood. Okay, let me just, okay, the, the name of the book is Desegregation of New York City Schools, A Story of the Silk Stocking Sisters, okay? Mm-hmm. The term silk stocking is a term that identifies the district in which PS6 existed and still does. That district in New York City is called the Silk Stocking District, goes way back to the Carnegie days and everything else. I describe that in the book. So I have to give it some con- you know, some context. So I decided to do more research. There was a, uh, some research called Blue Stockings. It goes back to Europe. It's a European model. Called, there's a group of women who are extremely bright and smart, um, and they were called the Blue Stockings women. Okay? So I used the term Silk Stocking Sisters because... Not only were we girls who attended a school in the Silk Stocking District, but we were sisters in a sense mm-hmm. that we were all women of color. Okay? Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, that's the term I came up with to talk about our experiences of being in a school in the Silk Stocking District of New York City and the fact that we were smart and intelligent like the blue stocking women in Europe. Mm-hmm. Neat. So the the way that the segregation played out in New York, um, I know you talk some about uh, in the book, I think you talk about how the segregation happens and takes place differently in the North than does in the South. Could you talk a, a little bit about what that looks like and what should the audience have in mind as they kind of picture how it played out in New York? All right. Southern schools, basically, it goes back to the whole issue of de facto and de jure segregation. Okay. I don't want to go through that in depth, that's, you know, legal terms, but pretty much I talk about that in the book as well. Because in the South, the fact the segregation was based upon the jury segregation, okay, by law. Whereas mm-hmm. de facto segregation was mostly in the northern part of the country because it's basically where you lived. Okay. All right. So where you lived determined where you attended schools. And most likely you go to your, your ten year neighborhood schools. Okay. But because of segregated society as a whole and the segregated uh, residential housing, you attend a school where most people who are like you attend schools. And that's part of the issue, okay? Um, I mean, and then then to make it much clearer, you know, there were ways that the northern schools try to find ways to integrate schools, and they have, like, the open enrollment program. 
the Princeton plan, um, educational complexes, and I would talk about magnet schools that's going to the 70s. So there are different ways that the North is trying to do to, to make sure that you could, you could do this more effectively. Now, where Southern methods to prevent desegregation, of course, took place, which, which was like tuition grants to other schools and freedom of choice plans, those are ways to prevent the, you know, desegregation in Southern schools, okay? I mean, there was one county in Virginia, Prince Edwards County, I believe, closed the schools down for seven years to prevent mm. this from happening, okay? Wow. So, um, yeah, so I'm just saying to you, the resistance was, was there. Um, and there were, matter of fact, the fact that I wrote this book, it's, and I'm going to check, this is, this, is, this is so shocking to me. There was a student who I taught a couple of years ago, and I, when my book came out, she said to me, Dr. Canada, I didn't know that schools were segregated in the North. Wow. I was shocked. Okay. <laughs> 2018, 19, you, you didn't. So she's going to, and she wants to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that says that we need to be able to educate and provide information for people so they would know. So someone asked me why to write the book. I wrote it because I needed to document what was happening. Oftentimes, we don't get an opportunity to do that, um, and it's much more difficult. But I made a point, and this is, if I don't write another book, this is the one that I wanted to make sure I wrote, because people are unaware. And she didn't even know that schools were, de- were segregated in the North, which is huge, which they were. And just like there were experiences like this that took place in New York City, some of the things took place in Detroit, Michigan, okay, uh, and other large cities in the north or, or central part of the country, okay? Um, so I, I, I just think that it's important that we have this image that the schools are so horrible in the south and it was terrible what's going on in the south, but yet and still similar activities were taking place in the north. Um, and I, I think people need to understand, don't, you know, they don't get a pass. The north does not get a pass on this. Right. They don't get a pass, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, it's easy to say that, but they don't get a pass because even to this day, you know, the issue is, and I, I, I'll just reference this, how is it that we only think something's integrated when it's always a white majority? Okay? But what happens when our society, or when you, you know, how, how is it that we're going to be able to have more diverse kinds of schooling if diversity, if you only have only, like for example, if you have 20 people in a class, 20 students, and you have 16 students are, are not are, are, are white students, okay? And then you have four students who are students of color. But that's fine. Just the opposite happens, and, it, and it's a problem. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just the opposite happens and it's a problem. Why? So I bring that up because I'm thinking that because of the demographics in this country, it is what it is, and it's going to be an issue sooner than later. Yeah. Okay? And I think that's something that we have to think about. And it goes back to the discussion, I believe, it was in the, it was in the 80s, Dr. Ronald, Ron Edmonds talked about, you know, it what... Basically, the quality of education, it wasn't about race. It was socioeconomic, I think, and he said socioeconomic, basically. You know, in other words, 
the issue, in other words, it's not, it's not so much that because you're sitting next to, and this goes back to the um, uh, Dr. Kenneth Clark, who was one of the um, psychologists who did the Brown, the, the, the Dial studies for the Brown decision. He presented the issue about how black kids would always pick the white dial that was yes. the, the favorite dial. Okay, and mm-hmm. some of those studies still exist. Basically, Dr. Kenneth Clark basically talked about that um, it wasn't about, uh, the Brown decision wasn't about just putting black kids in classrooms with white kids, or vice versa. It's about the fact that you knew in predominantly white, in white schools that they had the best textbooks, the best equipment, the best extracurricular activities. And my experience at PS6 was a perfect example. Okay, this was in the 60s, perfect example. Where I attended school initially, we had no gymnasium. The lunchroom was converted to a gym when we weren't having lunch. They had a small little back alley kind of playground, but when it rained, you couldn't go outside, all right? There, there, there was a, a small auditorium. There was no uh, uh, focused music class. There were no home economics kitchens. There were no kitchens. There was no chorus. There was no band. There was no orchestra, okay? And to tell you how premier PS6 was, you know the old-fashioned black chalkboards and the erasers? Okay. Right. PS6 had a special machine to clean the erasers. Wow. That tells you how, how, the, how different that school was compared to where I came from. I never saw a special machine to clean erasers. Look, we'd be lucky if some teachers take the, and hit it off a piece of paper. Okay? Mm. <laughs> right. So just to give you some idea of what the difference was. Do you know off the top of your head what the budget per student or the funding per student was, that the difference was? I'd be curious. No, I don't have information at all about the, the budget. Um, it, whatever, whatever the budget was, it, it was probably, the, the, I guess legally you have to have a similar budget for each school. Okay? But remember now. The schools that I attended and many of the other young people who were in East Harlem, because I have friends in East we came out of East Harlem, Harlem area, West Harlem, the, those schools are overcrowded. They have mm. more students than they need. They, ha- they had enough space for kids, okay? Right. So they needed some place to send these kids. Okay? Right. Mm. Whereas PS6 and maybe some other schools that were some of the feeder schools, they had more seats available. A couple of reasons for that. One, this was in mid-60s. Parents were moving out of the city from right. that neighborhood. Okay, they were they were having two and three kids, and they may be moving out to the country, Westchester County or Connecticut or wherever. They were leaving the city. Okay, number two, women were, were starting to work full time more. Okay, so they weren't gonna you know they, you know you didn't have the mom staying home all the time. All right, so that was happening as well, and plus people were having less children as a whole. Okay. So the age, the population for elementary school was dwindling in the PS6 area. The Silk Stockings district was now becoming a district that had less children and more people who were older or more seasoned. So that was the other thing. They needed some students to be in the classrooms because otherwise it goes back to the funding budget thing. So if you don't have enough students, you're not going to get as much money. Right. Mm -hmm. And I may show ignorance here. I don't fully understand the system, but does local tax money, like the local property tax base of the district um, is like, I know the federal funding is kind of one bucket, but then there's also state and local funding. And so my understanding was that uh, funding varies based on the local 
property values, and that that would then be a driver. And even just kind of tying in redlining, we've uh, we've talked about um, redlining in the past and how in New York, New York was kind of notorious for redlining. They um, there was whole large sections of New York that black people could not buy property in, um, and the result is that segregation kind of became the norm in housing and property values then, uh, I mean, if you want to know more about how this happened, go back to the redlining episode to the listeners, but property values kind of followed um, the policies that were made for the different black and white neighborhoods. Um, And that that then would feed back into the funding that uh, was allotted to the different schools. So even after redlining ends, people don't just move to new neighborhoods so that the effects of redlining it kind of like is the backdrop for the story of school segregation in a way yeah it, but because think about this ps6 had plenty of money it was a silk stocking district it was a premier district of the city of new york it still is okay up east side okay um and west harlem east harlem we the, those were not high socioeconomic communities Okay, you have a lot of public housing in those areas. Okay, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. very limited, uh, you know, uh, private homes. Um, so it was just a whole different socioeconomic status. So basically, PS6 had more monies to do with wherewithal, and plus they also had the extra layer of parent involvement who had private funding to this day. To this day. Yeah. Okay. Still to this day, it's a bit. Those parents raise money, like you, you know, like it's a huge fundraiser for the for, to, to give supplemental things to the school. Parents didn't have that in my my school. They didn't have the, this kind of incomes that would allow them to, to to raise thousands of dollars for supplemental equipment. They didn't even have the basic equipment. Okay. Right. So you know that says a lot about um, how economics drives. You know the forces, and and of course, PS six wanted to stay in existence, so they had to want to try to abide by the try to do more desegregation of their school, but at a cost. They they said we're going to select our students. You know, we want kids who are going to fit into the middle class. But you know, you know, I come from a two parent household. Okay, there's only one one of my friends who came from elementary school who didn't. Her parents were divorced. Everybody else was two family households. Okay, so that was huge. All right, and I'm thinking that. That says a lot also because we were able to still, I mentioned to you a story about the, the crayons. You know, maybe, you know, we, did, we didn't even live in neighborhoods that even offered some options, okay? So, you know, what could you do? So you had to go out of the community to even get the supplies that were needed to be able to just be on equal core with students in your classroom. Yeah. Okay? Mm-hmm. Um. And one of the things that someone asked me about, and I want to share this with your audience, we're always going someplace, but nobody else comes to us. Right. Absolutely. Okay? Okay? Yes, send us out, but no one comes to us. All right? So if you talk about equity and things like that, why is it that we're always sent out someplace and no one comes to us? Mm All right? And so that's something that the audience needs to think about. Why is that? Mm-hmm. Okay. Why is that? I've heard of a concept, the high cost of poverty, and how oftentimes because of the effects of poverty on a community, it ends up 
costing a lot just to be poor and people who are more affluent and who haven't gone through that don't really relate to that. But I think the crayon box thing is a really good example of it. Of That ended up being probably a $40 box of crayons or more. Like when you factor in like the bus fares and when you factor in the time, the actual cost of the crayons compared to the affluent white kids who just went to their local market and were able to get that 36 box of crayons. Like it costs more because of the place that you were coming from. And so it's like overcoming, not just, you have to overcome those disadvantages just to get to an even footing. But that's right. That's, that's the story about just about everything for many of us in this country. So, you know, if you think about starting back to, you know, you know, what happened, reconstruction, what happened after all, if you go back to all that, that, that's not a unknown story. Okay. Right. But people Mm -hmm. don't think of it like that. Um, it's like you're starting a race with someone half a mile ahead of you, okay? And you're supposed to try to, you know, beat that person to the finish line, okay? So what, I, what I'm saying to you, though, is that, first of all, would you put your child through what we went through? Most parents would say no. Most would say no, okay? Yet and still, we said we we're going to do this. We did it, Okay? And we didn't give up. Where most kids would say, I'm not going, I'm not going to go, give it up, give it up. We didn't give up. We persevered. So I think about, if you think about key words about this experience, and this experiment in particular at PS6, because it's like I said, to this day, it's still a premier uh, public school in the city of New York. And perseverance is the key. It's not just getting in there, but if you're able to persevere, it's like you just keep going. You don't give up. Okay? You don't give up. Um, and like I said, all the women and the little girls, well, were women now, I'm just saying, they talk about their individual experiences from yeah. the time that they grew up before they came to PS6 and afterwards, junior high school, high school, college, life, personal life, blah, 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 all that, okay? And it's good to have a snippet of what is possible, but also... Why do you have to go through it? One of the, like, like people say, why do I have to leave my neighborhood just to get this kind of education? Why can't I just have it where I can just walk to school like everybody else walks to school? Okay. That's the issue we talk about. All right. I've got two questions, and then, and then we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up. But I want to make sure I get these questions. I have, I have two questions. My first one is I'm wondering what you would – I'd be interested to hear what you would have to say to your younger self, like first day of that school – and you're like leaving the house to go to it. I wonder what are if there's if you've thought about that. Like, what are some things you would tell yourself um, at that age? And then I want like my daughter and even my sons to be like you, and I want them to get some of that perseverance. So I'm wondering if there's like if there were books or people that you looked up to that I can like tell them to do the same. Like I, I want, but how do I get, I know that you're like unique, uniquely wired and you're, I'm like so impressed with everything you've done, but I'm wondering how do I get what you've got into my kids? Like I, I, I'm wondering if, if there are shared interests or interests that I can push them towards now, you know, they're young, but I, I would love to hear those two questions before we end. Okay. I'm going to try to answer those very quickly for you. The first thing about what would I say to my younger version of myself, even though I still think I'm young. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, sure. Absolutely. And, and, okay. I'm still working this as long as I can. Okay. So I'm just saying yes, to indeed. you that 
uh, you know, hey, th- th- that's what keeps me going. First thing, I, I said mm-hmm. to myself, like I said to myself then, I would do the same thing, think the same way. I want to make my parents proud. Mm-hmm. Okay? Don't ask me if, if I was eight years old how I thought about that. I didn't want to do anything that was going to make my parents think less of me. I wanted to be the best. Okay? And if I had to go to the school, and if I'm going to the school, I'm going to, you know, do what I used to do. I'm used to doing. Okay? That's the first thing. So I don't think much of a difference now thinking back to my... When I got on that first bus, I think my mom went with me my first day. But my point is, I said... If this is what I'm supposed to do, I'm going to make the best situation out of this going here, okay? And I think the same thing now. So that's the first thing. Whatever you start, finish it, okay? <laughs> that's number one. And be the yes. best. Do the best, yes. okay? Put your best foot forward, okay? So I want to segue into the fact that what you would tell your children is that Expose yourself to as much as you can while you can. Don't wait. Do it now. Don't limit yourself. Okay? Open up a window of opportunity as much as possible. Right? We need that more than ever today. To open the windows of opportunity in all forms of fashion. Okay? And I think that is what's lacking. I think when we don't interact with others we don't have to all be the same okay but i'm just saying that when we limit ourselves is when we're, we have the issues i i know and i let me say this let me just talk, let me just clarify that very quickly when i i'm one of four children i have an older sister and i have younger siblings i'm the only one who attended ps6 i I'm very different from other siblings. And we're the same parents, same household, you name it, okay? The key piece was, I believe, was the PS6 experience, okay? And I think I'm in touch with other people, males, other guys who went to the school. We are connecting, and we're, we're thinking, oh, okay, all right? And I'm talking about, the, you know, people from different backgrounds, different, you know, Asian, European. We, we still kind of know each other. We're trying to reconnect. What is it about this PS6 experience, PS6 experience that, and, and, and I'll tell you, everyone's done pretty, pretty well, okay? So there's got to be something that you have to expose them early on. Do not wait. Hopefully it won't be as traumatic, but make sure that they get exposure to as many environments, situations as possible to prepare them for now. Not the future, for now. Mm-hmm. Okay? No, not future. Uh, for now. Today. Today. Okay, but what made the difference to me, and I'll close with this, the, what made a difference to me is my first black teacher. Mm-hmm. She was my third grade teacher. When I saw her in the classroom, and she, she was tough, but she pushed us. She encouraged us. And, I, and I've never forgotten that, okay? Mm-hmm. Had I not had that preparation from her, I may not have made it in PS6. She believed in me, all of us in the classroom. And my classroom was, I had a person who was Chinese, who lived across the street from me. There was a girl who was Puerto Rican, who lived in, uh, near some of the other kids in the class. So we were a diverse classroom. And to me, that was diverse, okay? But at the mm-hmm. same time, we all 
were supposed to excel. That's the expectation. When you have teachers who don't believe you can excel, that's when we have our problems. Right. Mm-hmm. So one, one final question, and uh, the way we typically close is by inviting you to speak not to us, but directly to the audience member. And with podcasting, it's like you're in the ear of the audience member as they're driving to work, as they're going about their day. And could you speak directly to them? How do they kind of take some of what we've talked about and either apply it to their life or like, what are some takeaways? How can they be more loving or grow as people through some of what you can bring through your experience? If I'll use a, I'll paraphrase this using about the driving experience. And I, I use this sometimes in my therapeutic approach. If you're driving forward, this, is, this could be your life. If you're, you're driving, right? What's the largest window? Okay? The large one is in front of you. Okay? You have two side mirrors and you have a small rear view mirror. Which one do you drive looking forward on? The large one. You may glance in the rear view mirror to see what's back there, but you don't keep looking and driving in the rear view mirror because otherwise you're going to have an accident. So go through your life glancing them so you can change lanes, okay, by looking the right and left side mirrors. But make sure that you have in front of you that large window in front of you that you can drive and say, okay, I know where I'm going. Because if you keep looking, constantly looking at that rear view mirror, you're going to have an accident. And many of us do that. We're always looking through the, the rear. Oh, what happened in the past? Okay. Move, keep moving forward. Yes. That's the best opportunity I can tell people. Keep moving forward because you will eventually get to your destination. Mm. Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming and for sharing um, your story and just giving us all of these nuggets. It's been amazing. Thank you so much. Um, Dr. Canada, how can we support you? How can our listeners support you? Direct us to ways that we can uplift you and, and support you. First of all, believe in the children. Okay? Mm-hmm. Believe in the children. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing. Number two, if they want to purchase my book, that's fine. It's available on Amazon. Also, um, if not, if they can encourage the, the libraries, the school libraries, any alum from any universities around this country, if they already have it at your university, ask them to get a copy, and then they can borrow from interlibrary loan. Okay? Um, that's the other thing. And I'll be doing wow. some of the things in the future. Just look out. Watch out. I will be doing some things in the future. And just to keep, you know, just, you know, check my website. Eventually, once I get it, you know, get it more in, up to date, and then you'll see the things that I'll be doing. Um, and we'll just go from there. But just, just, you know, my name is easy to find. So it's not going to be that difficult to find. There are not that many of us still. There's a few more of us around now. But still, um, if, if just stay positive and just keep moving forward. Thank you so much for your support um, now and in the future. Thank you, Dr. Canada. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you are looking for more information on what we discussed, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. If you'd like to play a supportive role in the podcast, you can support us for $5 a month at Patreon. That's patreon.com backslash blackhistoryforwhitepeople. We have a book coming out soon that we're really excited to share with you all. As soon as it's ready, you guys will hear about it. And so just keep your eyes open for volume one of Black History for White People. We'll leave you with this quote from Karen Parsons. Black history isn't a separate history. This is all of our history. This is American history, and we need to understand that. It has such an impact on kids and their values and how they view black people.